If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from Miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them Miracle Grow. Hi, I'm LeVar Burton, and this is LeVar Burton Reads. In every episode, I handpick a different piece of short fiction, and I read it to you. The only thing these stories have in common is that I love them. And I hope you will too. Today, I'm going to read Flyboys by the author Tobias Wolfe. It's from a collection of his entitled Our Story Begins, published by Vintage Books, and it also appears in audio from Blackstone Audio. Now, Tobias is probably best known for his memoir and for his short works. He wrote the very popular memoir about his own adolescence called This Boy's Life, which was adapted into a film. He also wrote the novel Old School and several collections of stories, among other things. This is a story about three boys, classmates, friends, growing up in the late 1950s or early 60s. Tobias doesn't give us the boys' ages or their race, but it seems pretty reasonable to assume that they are white and maybe 12 to 13 years old. Basically the age where you're old enough to think you know a lot and to bluff your way through the rest. But young enough to still be a child. To be honest, I struggled with this story and the choices that our main character has to make. And that's exactly why I wanted to read it to you. Please check out the content advisory if you are so inclined and if you're ready. Let's take that deep breath. And let's begin. Flyboys by Tobias Wolf. My friend Clark and I decided to build a jet plane. We spent weeks perfecting our design at the draftsman's table in his bedroom. Sometimes, Clark let me put on the green eye shade and wield the compass and calipers, but never for long. I drew like a lip-reader reads. Watching me was torture for him. When he couldn't take it anymore, he'd bump me aside, leaving me free to fool with his things, the samurai sword, the Webley pistol with the plugged barrel and wander the house. Clark's mom was usually out somewhere. I formed the habit of making myself a sandwich and settling back in the leather chair in the den, where I listened to old records and studied the family photo albums. They were lucky people, Clark's parents, lucky and unsurprised by their luck. You could see in the pictures that they took it all in stride, big spreads behind them, the boats and cars, and their relaxed, handsome families who, it was clear, did not get laid off or come down with migraines or lock each other out of the house. I pondered each picture as if it were a door I might enter, until something 
turned in me and I grew irritable. Then I put the albums away and went back to Clark's room to inspect his work and demand revisions. Sure and commanding in everything but this, Clark took most of my ideas to heart, which made a tyrant of me. The more attentive he was, the more I bullied him. His own proposals I laughed off as moronic jokes. Clark cared more for the perfection of the plane than for his own vanity. He thought nothing of crumpling a page he'd spent hours on and starting over because of some brainstorm I'd had. This wasn't humility, more an assurance that ran to the imperturbable depths and rendered him deaf to any appeal when he rejected one of my inspirations. There were times, many times, when I contemplated that squarish head of his as I hefted the samurai sword and imagined the stroke that would drop it to the floor like a ripe melon. Clark was stubborn, but there was no meanness in him. He wouldn't turn on you. He was the same one day as the next, earnest and practical. Though the family had money and spent it freely, he wasn't spoiled or interested in possessions except as instruments of his projects. In the eight or nine months we had been friends, we had shot two horror movies with his dad's eight-millimeter camera, built a catapult that worked so well his parents made us take it apart, and fashioned a monstrous, unsteerable sled out of a bed frame and five wooden skis we found in his neighbor's trash. We also wrote a radio mystery for a competition one of the local stations put on every year. Clark patiently retyping the script as I improvised more torturous plot twists and highfalutin dialogue. My dear Costas, it was really most astute of you to notice the mud on my smoking jacket. How unfortunate that you failed to decry the derringer in my pocket. We were flabbergasted that we didn't win. I supplied the genius, or so I believed. But I understood even then that Clark gave it form and did all the work. His drawings of our plane were crisp and minutely detailed, like real blueprints that a spy would cut somebody's throat for. As I pondered them at the end of the day, frontal and side views, views from above and behind and below, the separate designs locked together like a puzzle and lifted away from the flatness of the page. They became an airplane, a jet, my jet. And through all the long run home, I was in the cockpit, skimming sawtooth peaks, weaving through steep valleys, buzzing fishermen in the sound and tearing over the city in such a storm of flash and thunder that football games stopped in mid-play, cheerleaders gaping up at me, legs still flexed under their plaid skirts. A barrel roll, a waggle of wings, and I was gone, racing up through the clouds. I could feel the G's in my arms, my chest, my face. The skin pulled back from my cheeks. Tears streaked from my eyes. The plane shook like crazy. When I couldn't go any higher, I went higher. Sweet Jesus, I did some flying. Clark and I hadn't talked much about the actual construction of the jet. We let that question hang while we fine-tuned the plans. But the plans couldn't be worked on forever. We were getting bored and stale. And then Clark came up to me at recess one day and said he knew where we could get a canopy. When I asked him where, he looked over at the guy I'd been shooting baskets with pushed his lips together. Clark had long ago decided that I was a security risk. You'll see, he said, and walked off. 
All afternoon, I nagged him to tell me where the canopy was, who we were getting it from. He wouldn't say a thing. I wanted to tear him apart. Instead of heading toward his place after school, Clark led me down the avenue, past the post office and Safeway, and the line of drive-ins and pinball joints where the high school kids hung out. Clark had long legs and never looked right or left. He just flat-out marched, so I had to hustle to keep up. I resented being at his heels, sweaty and short of breath and ignorant of our destination. And most of all, I resented his knowing that I'd follow him anyway. We turned down the alley beside the Oddfellows Hall and skirted a big lot full of school buses, then cut through a construction site that gave on to a park where I'd once been chased by some older boys. On the other side of the park, we crossed the bridge over Flint Creek, swollen with a week's heavy rain. Beyond the bridge, the road turned into a series of mud holes, bordered by small, soggy-looking houses overhung by dripping trees. By then, I'd stopped asking where we were going because I knew I had been this way before, many times. I don't remember Freddy having any airplane canopies around, I said. He's got a whole barn full of stuff. I know. I've seen it. But I didn't see any canopies. Maybe he just got it. That's a big fat maybe. Clark picked up the pace. I said, So, Mr. Top Secret, how come you told Freddy about the plane? I didn't. Sandra told him. I let that ride since I told Sandra. Freddy lived at the dead end of the street. As Clark and I got closer, I could hear the snarl of a chainsaw from the woods behind the house. Freddy and I used to lose ourselves all day in there. I hung back while Clark went up to the house and knocked. Freddy's mother opened the door. She let Clark in and waited as I crossed the yard and mounted the steps. Well. Aren't you a sight for sore eyes, she said. Not as a reproach, though it felt like one. She ruffled my hair as I went past. You've grown a few inches. Yes, ma'am. Freddy's in the kitchen. Freddy closed his book and stood up from the table. He smiled shyly. Hi, he said. And I said hi back. It came hard. We hadn't spoken in almost a year, since he went into the hospital. Freddy's mother came in behind us and said, Sit down, boys. Take off your coats. Freddy, put some of those cookies on a plate. I, I can't stay long, Clark said. But nobody answered him, and he finally hung his jacket on a chair and pulled up to the table. It was a round table that took up most of the kitchen, Freddy's brother, Tanker, had carved pictures all over the tabletop, field and stream-type depictions of noble stags and leaping fish, eagles with rabbits in their talons, cougars crouched above mountain goats. He always kept his Barlow knife busy while he drank Olympia and told his stories. Like the stories, the pictures all ran together. They would have covered the whole table by now if Tanker hadn't been killed. The air smelled like laundry, and the windows were misted up. Freddy shook some Oreos onto a plate and handed it to me. I passed it on to Clark without taking any. The plate was dingy. Not encrusted, no major food groups in evidence, just dingy. Business as usual. I never ate at Freddy's unless I was starving. Clark didn't seem to notice. He grabbed a handful, and after a show of indecision, Freddy's mother took one. She was a thin woman with shoulder blades that stuck out like wings when she hunched over, as she did now, nibbling at her Oreo 
She turned to me, her eyes so sad I had to force myself not to look away. I can't get over how you've grown, she said. Freddy, hasn't he grown? Like a weed, Freddy said. By leaps and bounds, I said, falling into our old game in spite of myself. Clark looked back and forth between us. Freddy's mother said, I understand you boys are building an airplane. We're just getting started, Clark said. Well, that's just wonderful, Freddy's mother said. An airplane. Think of that. Right now, we're looking for a canopy, Clark said. Nobody spoke for a while. Freddy's mother crossed her arms over her chest and bent down even farther. Then she said, Freddy, you should tell your friends what you were telling me about that fellow. In your book. That's okay, Freddy said. Maybe later. About the mountains of skulls. Human skulls, I said. Mountains of them, Freddy's mother said. Tamerlane, Freddy said, and without further delay, he began to describe Tamerlane's revenge on the Persian cities that had resisted his progress. It was grisly stuff, and he didn't scrimp on details or try to hide his pleasure in them, or in the starchy phrases he'd picked up from whatever book he was reading. That was Freddy for you, gentle as a lamb, but very big on the Vikings and Aztecs and Genghis Khan and the Crusaders, all the great old disembowelers and eyeball gougers. So was I. It was an interest we shared. Clark listened, looking a little stunned. I never found out exactly how Tanker got killed. It was a motorcycle accident outside Spokane. That was all Freddy told me. You had to know Tanker to know what that meant. This was a very unlucky family. Bats took over their attic. Their cars laid transmissions like eggs. They got caught switching license plates and dumping garbage illegally and owing back taxes, or at least Ivan did. Ivan was Freddy's stepfather and a world of bad luck all by himself. He wasn't vicious or evil, just full of cute ideas that got him in trouble and made things even worse than they already were. Like not paying property taxes on the basis of some veteran's exemption he'd heard about but didn't bother to read up on, and that turned out not to apply to him. That brilliant stroke almost cost them the house, which Freddy's father had left free and clear when he died. Tanker was the only one in the family who could stand up to Ivan, and not just because he was bigger and more competent. Ivan had a soft spot for him. After the accident, he took to his bed for almost a week, then vanished. When Tanker was home, everybody'd be in the kitchen, sitting around the table and cracking up at his stories. He told stories about himself that I would have locked away for good. Like the time his bike broke down in the middle of nowhere and a car stopped, but instead of giving him a lift, the guys inside hit him over the head with a lunch bag full of fresh shit. Then a patrolman arrested him and made him ride to the station in his trunk, all in the middle of a snowstorm. Tanker told that story as if it were the most precious thing that ever happened to him. Tears glistening in his eyes. He had lots of friends, wise guys in creaking leather jackets, and he filled the house with them. He could fix anything. Plumbing, engines, leaky roofs, you name it. He took Freddy and me on fishing trips in his rattletrap truck and gave us Indian names. I was hard to camp with because I complained and snored. Freddy was cheap to feed. 
After Tanker got killed, everything changed at Freddy's. The house had the frozen, echoey quiet of abandonment. Ivan finally came back from wherever he disappeared to, though he spent most of his time away on some new enterprise. When Freddy and I got to the house after school, it was always dim and still. His mother kept to herself in the back bedroom. Sometimes she came out to offer us a sandwich and ask us questions about our day. But I wished she wouldn't. I had never seen such sorrow. It appalled me. And I was even more appalled by her attempts to overcome it, because they so plainly, pathetically failed. And in failing, opened up the view of a world I had only begun to suspect. Where wounds did not heal, and things did not work out for the best. One day, Freddy and I were shooting baskets in the driveway when his mother called him inside. We'd been playing horse, and I took advantage of his absence to practice my hook shot. My hook had Freddy jinxed. He couldn't even hit the backboard with it. I dribbled and shot, dribbled and shot, ten, twenty times, fifty times. Freddy still didn't come back. It was very quiet. The only sound was the ball hitting the backboard, the rim, the asphalt. I stopped shooting after a while and stood there, waiting, bouncing the ball. The ball was overinflated and rose fast to the hand, making a hollow whang, shadowed by a high ringing note that lingered in the silence. It began to give me the creeps. But I kept bouncing the ball, somehow unable to break the rhythm I'd fallen into. My hand moved by itself, lightly palming the pebbled skin and pushing the ball down just hard enough to bring it back. The sound grew louder and larger and emptier. The sound of emptiness itself. Emptiness throbbing like a headache. Spooked, I caught the ball and held it. I looked at the house. I thought of the woman closed up inside, and Freddy closed up with her, swallowed by misery. The house seemed conscious in its stillness, expectant. It seemed to be waiting. I put the ball down and walked to the end of the driveway then broke into a run. I was still running when I reached the park. That was the day the older boys chased me, their blood roused by the spectacle of my rabbity flight. They kept after me for a hundred yards or so and then fell back, though they could have caught me if they'd had their hearts in it. But they were running for sport. The seriousness of my panic confused them, put them off their stride. Such panic. Where did it come from? It couldn't have been just the situation at Freddy's. The shakiness of my own family was becoming more and more apparent. At the time, I didn't admit to this knowledge, not for a moment, but it was always there, lingering in the gut. A sourness of foreboding, a cramp of alarm at any sign of misfortune or weakness in others, as if such things were catching. Freddy had asthma. Not long after I ran away from his house, he suffered a severe attack and went into the hospital. Our teacher told the class about it. She had everyone write get-well notes and handed out mimeographed sheets with the hospital's address and visiting hours. It was an easy walk. I knew I should go and thought about it so much that whatever else I did that week seemed mainly to be not going. But I couldn't make myself do it. 
when Freddy came back to school, I was unable to speak to him or even face him. I went straight home after the bell rang, using the main entrance instead of the side door where we used to meet. And then I saw that he was avoiding me too. He ate at the opposite end of the cafeteria. When we passed in the hallway, he blushed and stared at the floor. He acted as if he'd done me some wrong. And the shame I felt at this made me even more skittish. I was very lonely for a time. Then Clark and I became friends. This was my first visit to Freddy's since the day I bolted. The next generation of influential Black voices can be found on NPR's new collection, Black Stories, Black Truths. Black Stories, Black Truths is a celebration of Blackness from NPR. Each of NPR's Black voices are as distinct, varied, and nuanced as the Black experience itself. And every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective, from Bobby Shmurda to The Wire. Michelle Obama, to reparations, there's no limit to the range of black stories, black truths. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the black experience. Because stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get podcasts. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Save big money on everything for your spring projects at Menards. We have all of your garden and landscaping essentials. Master Garden Premium Garden Soil contains a slow-release fertilizer that feeds gardens for up to nine months. It produces better results and is ready to use for all your gardening needs. Save big on Menards' great selection of garden and landscaping products. Compare brands in-store or online at Menards.com. Save big money at they say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Let's get back to our story. Clark polished off the Oreos as Freddy told his gruesome tale. And when he came to the end, I started one of my own from a book my brother had given me about Quantrill's Raiders. It was a truly terrible story, a cruel, mortifying story. The star sociopath was a man named Bloody Bill. I was aware of Freddy watching me with something like rapture. Freddy's mother shook her head when the going got rough and made exclamations of shock and dismay. No, he never. Just like she used to do back when the three of us watched Queen for a day, every afternoon, drooling shamelessly over the weird, woeful narratives sobbed out by the competing wretches. Clark watched me without joy. He was impatient for business and too sane for all this ghoulish stuff. I knew that he was seeing me in a different way, a way 
he probably didn't like. But I kept piling it on. I couldn't let go of the old pleasure, almost forgotten, of having Freddy on my hook and feeling his own pleasure thrumming through the line. Then the back door swung open, and Ivan leaned his head into the kitchen. His face was even bigger and whiter than I remembered, and as if to confirm my memory, he wore a red hunting cap that was too small and sat on his head like a party hat. Black mud encased his legs almost to his knees. He looked at me and said, Hey! By gum! No time, no see. One of the lenses of his spectacles had a daub of mud in the middle, like an eyeball on a pair of joke glasses. He looked at Clark, then at Freddy's mother. Hon, you aren't going to believe this. That darn truck got stuck again. A damp wind was blowing. Freddy and Clark and I stood with shoulders hunched, hands in our pockets, and looked on as Ivan circled Tanker's old pickup and explained why it wasn't his fault the tires were mired almost to the axle. The truth is, the old gal just can't pull her weight anymore. He gave the fender a rub. Pastor Prime. Has been. For years. Yes, sir, Freddy said. She's long in the tooth, and that's a fact. There you go, Ivan said. Ready for the pasture, I said. Over the hill, Freddy said. That's it, exactly, Ivan said. I just can't bring myself to sell her. His jaw started quaking, and I thought with horror that he was about to cry, but he didn't. He caught his lower lip under his teeth, sucked it musingly, and pushed it out again. His lips were full and expressive. I tended to watch them for signs of mood rather than his eyes, which he kept buried in a cunning squint. So, he said, gotta get the wood out. You fellows ready to use some of those muscles? Freddy and I looked at each other. Clark was staring at the truck. You want us to unload all of that? Won't take an hour, strapping boys like you, Ivan said. Maybe an hour by the time you load her up again, he added. The truck bed was filled with logs, stacked as high as the sides and heaped to a peak in the middle. Ivan had been clearing out the woods behind the house. Most of it was gone by now. Nearly an acre of trees turned into a stumpy bog, crisscrossed by tire ruts filled with black water. Behind the bog stood the house of a family whose pale, stringy daughters quarreled incessantly with their mother, screaming as they ran out the door screaming as they jumped into the souped-up cars of their boyfriends. The father and son also drove hot rods, maintaining them on parts cannibalized from the collection of wrecks in their backyard. They came out during the afternoons and weekends to crawl under their cars and shout at each other over the clanging of their wrenches. Freddie and I used to spy on the family from the trees, our faces darkened, twigs stuck in our hair. He wouldn't have to steal up on them now. They'd be in plain view all the time. Ivan had been hard at work turning trees into firewood. But firewood was cheap, and whatever he got wouldn't be worth it. Worth all the green and the birds and the scolding squirrels, the coolness in summer the long shafts of afternoon light. This place had been Iroquois wilderness to me, English forest and African jungle. It had been Mars, now gone, completely. I was a boy who didn't know he would never build a jet, but I knew that this lake of mud was the work of a fool. <laughs> 
I'll bet you can drive it out without unloading, Clark said. Already tried. Ivan lowered himself onto a stump and looked around with a satisfied air. Sooner you fellas get started, sooner you'll be done. A stitch in time saves nine, I said. No time like the present, Freddy said. There you go, Ivan said. Clark had been standing on a web of roots. He stepped off and walked toward the truck. As he got closer, the ground turned soupy and he went up on tiptoe, then began hopping from foot to foot. But there was no firm place to land, and every time he jumped, he went in deeper. When he sank past his ankles, he gave up and mucked ahead, his sneakers slurping, picking up more goop with each step. By the time he reached the truck, they looked like medicine balls. He crouched by one rear tire, then the other. We can put down corduroy tracks, he said. Ivan winked in our direction. Corduroy tracks, you say? That's what they used to do when covered wagons got stuck, Clark said. Put logs down. Son, does that look like a covered wagon to you? Also, artillery pieces. In the Civil War. Maybe we should just unload the truck, I said. Hold your horses. Ivan put his hands on his knees and studied Clark. I like a boy with ideas, he said. Go on, give it a step. Never hurts to try, Freddy said. That's it, exactly, Ivan said. Freddy and I walked up to the barn for a couple of shovels. We cut wide of the ruts and puddles, but the mud still sucked at our shoes. Once we were alone, I kept thinking how thin he'd gotten. I couldn't come up with anything to say. He didn't speak either. I waited while Freddy went into the barn, and when he came back outside, I said, We're going to move. Though no one had told me any such thing, those words came to mind, and it felt right to say them. Freddy handed me a shovel. Where to? I don't know. When? I'm not sure. We started back. I hope you don't move, Freddy said. Maybe we won't. Maybe we'll end up staying, I said. That would be great if you stayed. There's no place like home. Home is where the heart is, Freddy said. But he was looking at the ground just ahead of him and didn't smile back at me. We took turns digging out the wheels, one resting while the other two worked. Ivan laughed whenever we slipped into the mud, but otherwise watched in silence. It was impossible to dig and keep your feet, especially as we got deeper. Finally, I gave up and knelt down to work. I got more leverage that way, and Clark and Freddie followed suit. I was sheathed in mud up to my waist and elbows. My condition was hopeless, so I stopped trying to spare myself and just let go. I surrendered to the spirit of the mud. It's fair to say, I wallowed. What we did, under Clark's direction, was cut a wide trench from the bottom of each tire forward, about five feet, sloping up like a ramp. We jammed cordwood under the tires and then lined the ramps with more logs as we dug. We were about finished when the walls started to collapse. Clark took it personally. Fudge, he kept saying, and Ivan laughed and swayed back and forth on the stump. Clark yelled at Freddy and me to dig, dig, dig and stretched flat on his stomach and scooped the sliding mud out with his hands. I could hear Freddy laboring for breath, but he didn't let up, and neither did I. 
we burrowed like moles. And then came a moment when the tracks were clear and the walls holding, and Clark told Ivan to move the truck. Clark was excited and barked at him as he'd been barking at us. Ivan sat there blinking. Clark pitched some spare logs back into the truck. Come on, guys, he said. We'll push. Ivan stood and brushed off his hands and walked over to the truck, still watching Clark. Before he climbed into the cab, he said, Young fellow, if you ever need a job, call me. Clark and Freddie and I braced ourselves against the tailgate as Ivan cranked the engine and put it in gear. The rear wheels started to spin, churning back geysers of mud. I was in the middle, so I didn't catch much of it, but Freddie and Clark got plastered. Freddie turned away and then leaned forward again and started pushing with Clark and me. Ivan was rocking the truck to and fro trying to get it onto the logs. It rose a little, hesitated, then slipped and spewed back another blast of mud. Clark and Freddy looked like they'd been stuccoed. They moved in closer beside me as Ivan got the truck rocking again. I held my breath against the heavy black exhaust. My eyes burned. The truck rocked and rose again, hanging on the lip. Clark grunted again and again and again. I picked up his rhythm and pushed for all I was worth. And then my feet slid and I fell flat out as the truck jerked forward. The tires screamed on the wood. A log shot back and flipped past Clark's head. He didn't seem to notice. He was watching the truck. It gathered speed on the track we'd made and hit the mud again and somehow slithered on. Languidly, noisily, rear end sashaying. Two great plumes of mud arcing off the back wheels. The wheels spun wildly. The engine shrieked. Logs tumbled off the sides. The truck slewed and swayed across the bog and rose abruptly, shedding skirts of mud as it gained the broken asphalt in front of the barn. Ivan shifted gears, beeped merrily, and drove away. You all right? Clark said. Freddy was bent double, head almost between his knees. He held up a hand but went on panting. The truck had left behind an exaggerated silence in which I could hear the clutch and rasp of every breath he took. It sounded like hard work, hard and lonely. When I moved toward him, he waved me off. Clark picked up a stick and began scraping his sneakers. This seemed an optimistic project, caked as he was to the eyeballs, and he went about it with method and gravity. Freddy straightened up. His face was pallid. His chest rose and fell like a bird's. He stood there a while, watching Clark wield the stick. We can get cleaned up at the house, he said. If it's okay with you, Clark said, I'd like to take a look at that canopy. I'd been hoping all afternoon that Clark would drop the subject of the canopy because I knew as a matter of absolute fact that Freddie didn't have one. But, he did. It was in the loft of the barn, where his father had stored items of special interest from the salvage yard he'd owned. In all the rainy afternoons we'd spent fooling around up there, I must have seen it a hundred times, though having no use for it, 
not even recognizing what it was, I'd never take a note. The canopy was smaller than our plans specified, but the plans could be changed. This was the genuine article. Freddy played the flashlight slowly up and down the length of it. He must have prepared for this moment, because unlike everything else up there, the canopy was free of dust, polished, even, by the look of it. The light picked up a few scratches. Otherwise, it was perfect. Clear, unbroken, complete with flashing. Simple, yet technical, too. Real. If I'd had any doubts, they left me. It was obvious that our jet was not only possible, but as good as built. All we had to do was keep having days like this, and soon the pieces would all come together, and we'd be flying. Clark asked Freddy what he wanted for it. Nothing. It's just sitting here. We poked around a while and went back to the house, where Freddy's mother declared shock at our condition and ordered us to strip and hose off. Clark wouldn't do it. He just washed his face and hands, but I took a long shower. And then Freddy's mother gave me some of Tanker's clothes to wear home and wrapped my own dismal duds in a butcher paper parcel, tied off with a string handle like a mess of gizzards. Freddy walked us to the end of the street. The light was failing. I looked back and saw him still standing there. When I looked again, he was gone. We stopped on the bridge over Flint Creek and threw rocks at a bottle caught in some weeds. I was all pumped up from getting the truck out and seeing the canopy. Plus, Freddy's mother had lent me Tanker's motorcycle jacket, which, though it hung to my fingertips, filled me with a conviction of my own powers that verged on madness. I was half hoping we'd run into those older boys in the park so I could whip their asses for them. I leaned over the railing, spat into the water. Freddy wants in, Clark said. He said that? He didn't tell me. You were in the shower. So, what did he say? Just that he wished he could come in with us, on the plane. What, or he takes the canopy back? No. He just asked. We'd have to redesign the whole cockpit. It would change everything. Clark had a rock in his hand. He looked at it with some interest, then flipped it into the creek. What did you tell him? I said we'd let him know. What do you think? He seems okay. You know him better than I do. Freddy's great. It's just... Clark waited for me to finish. When it was clear that I wasn't going to, he said, whatever you want. I told him that all things considered, I'd just as soon keep it to the two of us. As we crossed the park, he asked me to have dinner at his place so he wouldn't get skinned alive about his clothes. His dad was still in Portland, he said, as if that explained something. Clark took his time on the walk home, looking in shop windows and inspecting cars in the lots we passed. When we finally got to the house, it was all lit up and music was playing. Even with the windows closed, we could hear strains of it from the bottom of the sidewalk. Clark stopped. He stood there, listening. South Pacific, he said. 
good. She's happy. When I was in high school at St. Pius X Seminary and Preparatory, uh, you, you all have heard me t- talk about my time in the seminary before, um, there was a mandate that everybody participate in community service. And I drew in, I guess it was my first or second year there, I drew visitations to some of the local nursing homes in the area. Now. My grandparents lived in Missouri, and I grew up in California, and so I did not at that time have an awful lot of experience being around elderly people. Um, <laughs> being an elderly person myself, I, I wonder exactly what the hell I thought old was. Um, but they made me uneasy. At least that was my expectation that I was going to be very uncomfortable in the presence of these people who ex- had, an, had, had a condition that I was unfamiliar with. And I used to dread the Thursday afternoons once a week when I'd be driven to this convalescent home or the other convalescent home. And of course, after a few weeks, realizing that they were just human beings who were looking to have a little human contact, I became less afraid and less hesitant and really began enjoying my time there getting them to laugh or um, getting them excited about a song or a game of cribbage, I mean, whatever. And in reading the story, I felt like our protagonist was definitely coming from that place of fear. I mean, he decides, he decides when he discovers that his friend is sick. That, it, that he can't be around it, that it makes him uncomfortable. And given that he's now, he now has a new friend, right, who seems to have it all. I mean, Clark's family is rich, 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 right? And he, he doesn't want to, in, in his friendships, go back to the energy of Freddy's world. He'd rather stay in Clark's. And that decision that he makes at the end of the story to exclude Freddy from the plane project, it really bothered me until I read the story again and again. And, and I understood his motivations more. It was simply fear. It was just that discomfort that comes from that place inside that is undeveloped, right? When we're young like that, um, these things loom large in our lives, larger than we can really understand. And so that tendency to want to run away from, shy away from that which feels different, difficult, daunting. We tend to choose those experiences that bring us feelings that are much lighter and much more welcome than that. (laughs) I guess I I say that to say this. We are going to be afraid in our lives. 
But what we are afraid of, we have a choice in. We get to choose what we will be, as a response, brave about, or conversely, perhaps a little cowardly. Those are all choices. We are human. We are not perfect. We are works in progress. You know, they have in psychology um, this method of exposure therapy, right? Where if you're afraid of heights, they gradually, you know, first you start on a stool and then I guess a ladder and then they, you know, they, they take you higher and higher until, you know, finally you are accustomed to the feelings that you feel and then are able to, you know, check yourself sort of and, and, um, and, and step more bravely into the experience. That's what I'm talking about. Having the courage to, in spite of our fears, move forward into the moment. Allow ourselves to feel the feelings, but really check yourself. Is this really what's real for me? Am I really, really afraid? Or, I, or have I convinced myself that fear is the right response? Right? Am I really uncomfortable? Or is that just how I think I should be feeling? It's only by being in that moment, fully aware and conscious of what you're doing and what you're feeling, that we can really move beyond those limiting beliefs, right? With practice, we can all make different choices in our lives and in our relationships. Being human is sometimes a very confusing occupation. But if we work at it, it can also be a really glorious journey. Our producer on this episode of LeVar Burton Reads is Julia Marie Smith. She's the best in the business, y'all. Our researcher is Lakeisha Lewis. So glad you are aboard, my sister. Editing and sound design by Justin Asher, one of our new kids on the block who's not so new anymore. Our sound engineering is by Brendan Burns and my favorite engineer, LeVar Burton. My thanks today to Tobias Wolf for allowing me to read his story. Flyboys is from his collection, Our Story Begins, published in print by Vintage and published in audio by Blackstone Audio. And if you like this podcast, one of the ways you can show it is by sharing an episode with a friend. You can also leave a rating or review on Apple Podcasts and include a story suggestion for us. And if you would prefer to listen to episodes ad-free and also have access to some exclusive bonus author interviews, you can do that on Stitcher Premium. Go to stitcherpremium.com slash LeVar to start your free trial. LeVar Burton Reads is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Josephine Martirana. She is the boss and yours truly, LeVar Burton. And I am LeVar Burton. You can find me on Twitter, at LeVar Burton, LeVar.Burton on Instagram, or my website, LeVarBurton.com. I'll see you next time, but you don't have to take my word for it. Stitcher. 
They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.